Hi folks, this is Nick Calavera, and you're listening to Monster Porn, the only horror podcast handsome and big cocked enough to make you swipe right on that app that your girlfriend doesn't know is on your phone. And when you swipe right, I know you're hoping maybe, just maybe, they're going to notice you and message you back. But you know what really gets Monster Porn's attention is that big dick energy. And nothing says big dick energy like opening up iTunes and leaving a five-star review and rating. Remember, if you like Monster Porn, then Monster Porn likes you. A listener asks, how did you come up with the name Monster Porn? Well, after assembling market research and conducting several focus groups, we just threw all that out and tossed a dart at your mom's search history. Welcome to Monster Porn. This week's story is The Bridge to Citrus Empire by Brett Norwood. you think you're going yeah we're we're getting out of this office for a little bit you call this man child toy room and office these are not toys they are totems of the forgotten gods you know the gods who are gods before gods were cool whatever makes you feel better about yourselves if that's possible hmm yeah. Anyways, I ordered a pizza, filled the fridge with beer, and I left Netflix on for you. How stupid do you think that I am? Yeah, pretty Dead goddamn dumb. stupid. Screw you two! Somebody grab me a Paps. Oh, Jesus. You're gonna start wearing plaid and buying vinyl, aren't you? What? Let's go, Matt. Be good, babe the not-so-gallant. Get out of here! Your mothers are on their way, and I don't want you two spoiling my fun. My mother was a 10th level Shadow Wraith. Good luck. Yep. Fuck off, wee little piggy. Hmm, nothing wrong with a little blue ribbon. It takes the edge off. Ha! Netflix. Like I'd be dumb enough to fall under my own spell. I never consume the fiction. I destroy worlds with it. Oh, Christ. Oh, the man with a skull on his chest just killed 30 people. And it looked so, so real. Oh, shit. He just, he, he took like five bullets. Oh, man, I'm kind of into shit. (laughs) 
Youth is for exploration. I sure as shit didn't have a better reason to be in L.A. I had just graduated with my bachelor's and happened to know a pair of film grads. For this alone did I end up in that sprawling monstropolis, and it was divine. Not in the holy Christian way, but in the classical way, like Zeus fucking the swan or Saturn eating his fucking babies. That is the halo around L.A. The idea had been to see new things, and at that, it was mostly a success. But, with the exception that I spent whole months, it seemed, with a phone attached to my head, looking for a job rather than enjoying the sojourn. But I did get to the beach a few times, and I drove Mulholland Drive and walked around Hollywood like a tourist. All of the required things. Still, the early months were spent there, cloistered in the apartment I shared with those two film grads, in Culver City, where I worried about where my money was going to come from and tried hard to convince myself the impulse to move there had not been a mistake. I slept through the callback from a company called Accredited Academics when it came around 10 o'clock on a weekday morning. When I rolled over on the squeaking air mattress and saw that someone, anyone, had called me back, my blood ran cold. There were five good minutes of hold music accompanied by student testimonials. When the receptionist answered, I imagined she wore a business suit. I was in my boxers on the floor. I signed on to a training seminar that Friday afternoon in an office suite at the Hilton. I was going to be a tutor. I ended up with gigs all over the city. While most of the tutors in the program tried to group their gigs closer and in their own neighborhoods, I saw no reason not to spread myself over the city. The point had been, after all, to see more things. The drive home often became my excuse for exploration. I made a game of seeing how many new ways I could find my way home from each. Whereas my roommate Rob refused to set tire in certain neighborhoods, or even to run to the nearest Walmart, which was on Crenshaw, the streets where the front doors were faced with locked metal screens didn't intimidate me much. Teens with more melanin than myself hung out in McDonald's parking lots like chain-draped gangsters, but then again so did all those slim shady fakers back in my hometown with their monster drink-colored rice burners with unnecessary spoilers. Sometimes, rather than wandering the inner city, I would end up at the ocean. In the evening, I would watch the sky turn purple and the metal sea turn gray. There weren't often many people on the beach in the evening on a workday in the fall. I was alone with the wind-beat whooshing of the waves and the shorebirds pecking at the trash. I could see the Venice Pier and the coast of Malibu arcing along the far side of the bay. The flavor on the air was sewage and sea salt, and it was beautiful. The problem with tutoring is it's hard to get enough hours to make a livable income. You have two or at most three sessions in the afternoons after school's out. You're hard-pressed to get three or four hours of work a day. The result of this little job was basically that I was still attached to my phone looking for other jobs. I was sitting in my Jeep in some parking lot somewhere, near where I had just interviewed for a second job. I forget exactly what. And I was listening again to the cherry hold music and glowing testimonials. There was no way that litany of academic transformations of night to day were not bullshit. Kids who had half the motivation and twice the confusion suddenly loving school and striving to excel 
as rainbows and white doves and stars exploded into confetti over their studious heads. Fortunately, someone at the Hilton suite picked up before I got sick. The receptionist, who, yes, wore a cheap suit, I had discovered during orientation, answered the phones from behind a folding card table amid stacks of cardboard boxes of paperwork. Yes, I said. This is Dan Marsh. I'm a no-child-left-behind tutor. Can you transfer me to scheduling? I'll put you through to Dion. There was a click and the phone rang three times. I prepared myself for the futile exercise of leaving a voice message. Dion, she suddenly self-announced like a Pokemon. Uh, this is Dan Marsh. I'm an NCLB tutor. I was wondering if the client I got the email about is still available, the one in, uh, the one in Citrus Empire. Yeah, that's the one, I answered. I waited for Dion to speak again. I imagined that she was checking on her computer. Yes, the client in Citrus Empire is still available. Would you like me to schedule him with you? Please, I said. Can I get your name again, sir? Dan Marsh, I said, and I spelled it out. Okay, Mr. Marsh, she said when the sounds of keyboard clicks ended. We'll send you the information in the mail, and you'll be able to get in contact with the child's guardian. Thank you for calling in. His last tutor dropped him, and we need someone to pick him up so he can get his hours in before May. What she meant is, so they can bill the government for every hour they possibly could. I wondered how much of that federal money was being skimmed off of my paycheck. Thank you, I said. Have a good day, she recited and hung up. As I mentioned, there were certain places in L.A. County my roommate Rob refused to go. When I had mentioned tutoring gigs in South Central or on Adams, he'd pause a tick and say, Really? As if I just told him I had to stick my head in a lion's mouth for my paycheck. When I told him I would be working in Citrus Empire, he alluded to reports of gang violence in what he called Citro. And this being Rob, I was inclined to disregard the hearsay. However, my other roommate, Jeff, chimed in from the couch where he cradled a gallon tub of chocolate chip ice cream, looking over his shoulder at us in the kitchen. Oceanfront properties that developers won't touch, he said, as if the premise was the conclusion. And he returned his attention to TLC. I Wikipedia'd Citrus Empire. The page was a stub, which only gave demographics from the 2000 census. I had a photo of a civic statue set among typical California orange trees. It was a merman. This gave me a much more positive impression than my roommates had. The manila envelope from accredited academics came three days later and contained a spreadsheet with only two rows, labels and data. And this table gave me the student's name, Hippolito Aguilar, his mother's, Rachel Aguilar, their phone number, and which subject I was to tutor. Math. A subject where I myself might only have a sixth grade proficiency, I reflected. I called the number, and Miss Aguilar spoke English well, which was good because I spoke Spanish poorly, and we set up an initial session on the following Tuesday in their home.
On Tuesday, I undertook the drive from our apartment in Culver down to Citro for the first time. I set out about a half hour in advance of the session and took the 405 south to exit 44, and then surface roads the rest of the way. The street, becoming a bridge or causeway, crossed a marshland similar to one in Marina del Rey to the north. I entered Citro and, predictably, encountered a Ralph's Grocery and an El Pollo Loco, first thing. This little city within the city seemed typical enough. I followed the directions I'd taken from Google Maps and scribbled on an old receipt. Oration Avenue across its intersections with Sanitation and Mercedes. Then a right, west on Loyola Street, following it to Le Guin, where I would find the address. It was a tidy, well-kept home. The only detriment was its spotty lawn. It was in the common southwestern style and had a couple of tortured agave plants in front. It was small and on a small lot, and modest. The one-and-a-half-car driveway had no garage. I parked on the street in case someone came home and needed the parking spot. I sat for five minutes interpreting the ifs, ands, and buts of the red-posted ordinances. No parking between 9 p.m. and 8 a.m. Tuesdays and Thursdays, two-hour parking, 9 to 5, etc. And practically had to draw a Venn diagram to figure out if I could stay there. The screen door and windows of the house had wrought iron security bars. I rang the bell, and while I waited, I noticed and pondered over the Hebrew letter nailed on the door jamb. The inner door swung open, and a hunched woman spoke in curt, accented words that it sounded like she had practiced. Hello, are you the tutor? I spewed out some professional words I had also rehearsed, and quickly found she knew not enough English, and I not enough Spanish, to facilitate much communication. Hippolyto's grandmother led me into the house, and she called, Hippolyto, tu maestro está aquí. I took a seat in the living room on the faux leather couch across from the big blank TV. A low glass coffee table was littered with mug rings and a Transformers toy. The boy came out of the hallway in a listless, defeated manner that told me just how eager he was to learn. He was eleven or twelve, as befitting a middle schooler, and had his slick black hair childishly parted down the middle. His skin tone seemed gray coming down the hallway, but it didn't strike me as odd until he was in the full light and this sense that he was standing in a shadow didn't go away. I couldn't identify what his condition was, but I presumed he had to have some disease, and just looking at him then made me want to go get up and wash my face and hands, as mean as that sounds. He was just amazingly gray, and you could see his veins through his skin a little bit, which looked very purple against the brown-gray. When I shook his hand, it felt hairless and plastic like a Ziploc full of warm water and bones. As for his manner, he was extremely polite and well-groomed. I could see in his dutiful determination and feigned attentiveness. He had been taught to be obliging and deferential. He was clearly shy because he didn't say much or look me in the eyes more than twice. But his skin tone was the only oddity I could see in him. After I asked him his interests, animals and soccer, I administered the required pretest, which was supposed to determine his needs. I sat back and watched him fill out the bubble sheet 
and the speed at which he did so was encouraging. I figured I had lucked out and this would all be easy for him. When I got back to the apartment, I couldn't resist the urge to shower. I also googled skin conditions and found nothing like it before getting on the accredited academics website to grade as pretest and have that out of the way. To my increasing horror, as I worked down the sheet, I realized nearly every answer was wrong. Hippolyto had guessed all the way through. When I flipped through the test pages, I saw the only question where Hippolyto had scribbled any work was one about the multiplication of rabbits in captivity. But it too had been answered incorrectly. The more I thought about it, I realized Hippolyto's skin condition reminded me of cooked onion, semi-translucent, and little brown or purple. When Jeff came and stood by my computer desk asking me how my visit to Citro went, I asked him if he knew of anything, any disease that could turn a person see-through. He thought a minute. Death, he said. Funny, I said, not that see-through. I didn't meet Rachel Aguilar in person until the next visit. She was soft-faced and brown-skinned and showingly pregnant. I had her sign off in my timesheet for both sessions, and she asked me how her son was doing. Your son is bright, I told her. I think he's more interested in science, but he does need a lot of help with his math. Yes, he does need help, doesn't he? She said, seeming a little sad at my words. I'm sure a lot of it is the school, the way it's taught, I mean. Nobody likes math. I think with a little help, he ought to improve. I'm very glad you think so, she said quickly. Hippolyta's teachers don't think much of him. They don't think one like him can really learn. You know? Her word choice surprised me, and I figured she had to be talking about his condition, whatever it was. I was afraid to ask, but I did. What do you mean? They do not think a, a Hele is able to learn like the others, she said. It was the first time I heard that word. It sounded like Hele, which I assumed was a Spanish word and sounded like a racial slur. I could not tell at the time exactly what she said, but it was an English word. Jelly. I was afraid to ask more at the time. Returning from Citro, I parked in a turnout on Vista del Mar and admired the oceanic sunset, which gave everything the visual quality of polished steel or light refracting across motor oil in a puddle. Airliners circled above, waiting to land, lights flashing against the matte gray silhouettes. I hate to... I almost hate to mention it, I said into my phone, you know, because, like, whenever you talk about future plans while they're still very much just ideas, it, it, it tends to become just that, you know, talk. But I've been thinking, well about what I want to do when I'm done here, you know. I'm thinking about doing a teaching abroad kind of thing. School man, the voice returned. My buddy, uh, you know, you met him once, Jeremiah. He did that for a while in Japan, and it, 
It seemed he really liked it there. It gave him this opportunity to travel, which is cool, while paying the bills. Yeah, man. That's cool. So, uh, where, like, where would you go, man? I was thinking, well, I was thinking about Japan, too. I've been even learning, well, trying to learn a little Japanese, you know. The writing's hard, but the language... I checked out a a textbook from the library. So I've been looking at a few companies that send, you know, people over to teach. The only thing... Well... What? The only thing is what I... I don't know. What I might miss if I didn't just come back home. Like what? You know, well... Jennifer's back in Livingston. Oh, do you... Do you think that if you went back, you and she would be together? I didn't like how outrageous he made it sound. I don't know, Andy. I don't know. My face was burning red. I could feel it. I regretted saying so much. But, I said, wrestling the conversation back into comfortable waters. I actually enjoyed tutoring, teaching, working with kids. Man, you know, I I don't know if I've ever enjoyed a job before. It's like a rare thing. So I think maybe I need to do this teaching abroad thing. Do it, he said. Hey, look, I'm just heading into work, so I'll give you a ring. I don't know, maybe tomorrow? All right, later, man. Peace, chief. I got out of the car and walked around on the beach. I found a place where tiny tide pools lingered between the washed boulders that here and there cropped up from the dark sand in rashes. A stilt darted between the mirror-like pools. Far north, I could see the hills of Malibu and the carnival wheel on the Venice Pier, minuscule in the distance. I held my phone out at arm's length and took a shot of myself with Malibu behind me. Then I sat on one of those rocks and brought the phone close to my face to see how it turned out. I took another of the wave waters running between the rocks covering the sand like a frothy, oily bedsheet, getting pulled up and then back down. Are you married? Hippolyto asked me. Between us, on the low coffee table, was a poster board on which I'd drawn a bunch of geometric shapes with numbers scribbled around them. Ah, no, I answered. Do you have a girlfriend? No. Oh. Why not? Jesus, I muttered. His mischievous smirk faded and he looked back at our project. I decided to heckle him a bit in return. What about you, huh? I tutor a cute girl over on Pico about your age. He pretended not to hear. Suddenly our math work got very interesting to him. I had struggled to come up with a lesson plan. Hippolyto's complete bafflement with mathematics led me to look among his interests for a strategy. I would play to his interests and then weasel some math in from the side. I remembered the story problem from the pretest about the rabbits that had grabbed his attention. One of the California state achievement standards that the pretest suggested was A31, using variables in expressions describing geometric quantities. I came up with the idea of building an imaginary zoo with Hippolyto. We would use geometry to decide how big the animal enclosures needed to be. 
The next state standard had to do with rates, so we could go into reproductive rates after that. And how was it going? It was bombing. Hippolyto smelled the math a mile away and immediately went into his defensive mode, which was to answer whatever math question with the first number that popped into his head. On the faintest prayer, it would be the one number out of all infinite numbers that would please me and let us move on. When we made the tagger enclosure, he was supposed to use geometry to tell me how big it needed to be for two taggers, given a made-up minimum amount of space that one tagger required. He got hung up and asked me a funny question. Um, two tigers can't live in the same cage, can they? One will die, right? I thought a moment and said, No, in a zoo things are different than in the wild. I think they can live together. There was another time, later on, when we were doing rates, that I wanted him to calculate population change in a pack of Yellowstone wolves. It was the same sort of response. He acted like he didn't have enough information to solve the problem. How many good wolves and how many bad wolves? He asked. What do you mean? You know, he said. Good or bad for making more? Good or bad for making more, I echoed. How many, like, wolves are good for making good baby wolves? And how many have the... The bad blood. Oh, uh, we're going to assume they're all good, I told him. He seemed surprised by this. I was surprised by the strange added significance implied in the way he had pronounced good and bad. It was a warm January afternoon near the beach when I began to understand Ippolito. I sought out that plaza with the merman, which had served to define Citrus Empire on Wikipedia. The old downtown of Citro had a split-direction main street, with a paved plaza in between the directions of travel. It would have been a nice business district years ago, or if money had stayed in the township. Aside from a few payday loan places, salons, and a B-grade restaurant advertising mariscos, there wasn't much happening downtown. But in the middle of it all was the old statue of the bearded merman with a Poseidon trident in one fist and the globe seized in the other. He was covered in corroded streaks and bird shit. Something was spray-painted on his side and thigh in bright orange. It wasn't anything I could make sense of, just scribbles. For once I was nervous to get out of my car. Some hooded teenagers loitered by the payday loan storefront. A man in a cheap suit passed down the other side of the street. Both parties stared at their toes. The teens milled about, fidgety but listless. The man in the suit hurried into the other creditor. I could see the steely ocean straight down the street a few blocks between the trees and buildings, where three or four concrete posts terminated Main Street, preventing it from running straight on into the sea. I had planned to get a photo of the statue, and I resolved to still get it. I wouldn't need to leave my car very far away. So I got out and crossed to the street median where the merman stood on its curled tail. I brought up the camera and raised my phone, 
But then I noticed the succulents in the round planter that made the statue's base. It wasn't a perfect resemblance. But I got the sense instantly. I mean, the spiked leaves, like a yucca or an agave, were cool blue and translucent, and I didn't touch it. But I thought the leaves would feel like tight Ziploc bags full of jelly. Though more diaphanous and colored than Hippolyto's skin, the connection could not be avoided. Forgetting the merman a moment, I took pictures of the succulents. I was so concerned with getting a good close photo that I no longer thought about my surroundings. When I did look up again, I saw that one of the citrus trees held a singular dangling fruit. And it, also, was like the succulent, and like Hippolyto. It had the pocked texture of an orange, but I could see its blue-tinted chambers through a slightly milky skin. I took a picture. Still believing this to be a disease, I became terrified at the idea of an infection so adaptable, so communicable, that it could hop from succulent to citrus to human being. I was ready to go home. I was ready to shower. The man startled me. I don't know what he said, but he called my attention and I saw he was standing there in the plaza. He must have walked up, but he was standing still now and just looking at me. He wore a golf shirt and khakis like a store clerk and had thin black hair that was curly. He was like Hippolyto. I don't know where you're supposed to be, boy, he said, but it ain't here. One of his eyes looked all black. I, uh, I stuttered, searching for a reply. I'm just saying, he said, this Caravelo's turf, and they don't much like you when you're not jelly like they is, and you about jelly as Wonderbread. He laughed a bit, the way an old man laughs when he gives patronizing advice to the unversed. I was afraid to ask questions. I said thanks, waved, and walked back to my car as if I weren't scared of the man, who was still there chuckling to himself. When I drove past the statue to make a U-turn at the first cross street, I saw the graffito on the merman at a better angle and distance. A blob-like shape with dangling streaks beneath it. I recognized it was a jellyfish. I searched for jelly on Urban Dictionary. It was short for jealous, but that didn't help me any. When I googled Jelly Citrus Empire, I didn't find anything useful either. Then I looked up Citrus Empire Gang, and on an encyclopedia of American gangs, I found a listing for Los Carabelos, and all it told me was that their territory was Citrus Empire. Then, when I looked up Carabelo, in a Spanish-English dictionary. I couldn't find the word and assumed it was slang. Like you were talking about the violence in Citro, I said to Jeff as we watched TLC on the couch. But do you know anything about the gang there called Los Carabelos? We were watching how M&Ms were made. Bunny turds on a conveyor. Jeff answered without looking at me in between scoops of ice cream. First, he shook his head no. Just nobody has anything good to say about Citro, he said. 
there's this line producer in our office who had to get some shots in Citro for some reason. Like for B-roll they were putting together of urban stuff in neighborhoods. And he said he was never going back there again. It just looked like run down and shit, man. Gave him a bad vibe. He glanced at me. I noted his blank expression and the sunglasses stuck in his hair. That was all he knew. Rob came through the door in a determined hurry, as he always did from work, anxious to get to his computer and maximize his time spent doing nothing. After a round of sup, Jeff called to Rob in the kitchen. Hey, let's hit the Cheesecake Factory at the Grove again tomorrow, he said out of the blue. And then, Dan was talking about Citro. What's it like? Rob called back. Ah, I stalled. It's like run down and shit. Like you said, I told them. But, uh, hey, I have photos. I pulled my phone and showed them the Hippolyto plants. Weird, Jeff said, and Rob echoed the same. But they weren't too interested until I said, The kid I tutor there looks like this too. What do you suppose that means? That's fucked up, man. Jeff said, and he returned to watching the M&Ms mechanically poured into their familiar brown baggies and sealed. When it was over, we watched Rob play Xbox and piddled around on our phones. After a while, on pause, Rob thought to speak up. Aren't you, aren't you worried to park your car in Citro? Rachel Aguilar was epically pregnant, and more so each time I saw her. I never saw a man in the house, and I never saw the sister, Hippolyto, and his mother both mentioned once or twice. Almost always I was alone with Hippolyto after school, and occasionally his mom would come home from work before I left, and would seize the opportunity to make her sign off on my hours so I could get paid. I would drive home in the dark, among the crowded car lights and lit-up buildings. Sometimes I would pass Century and LAX, and the tall office building that was there was an enormous black monolith full of yellow squares. At a stoplight, I made a call. Hello, she chimed. Hey there, I said. Happy, uh, holiday that shall not be named, I joked. Happy holiday that shall not be named to you, too, Jenny said. I got your text earlier, I told her. Oh, good. I thought you'd probably be at work, so I I texted, she said. Yeah, I was, I said. But I was, I was happy when I saw it, I added cautiously. So what did you do today? She told me, and though the tone of the conversation was somewhat uncertain, she hadn't mentioned a man since she broke up with David in the fall. Despite what we had talked about before, I still hoped. She had passed me over before. But now we talked every day, and she confided in me. I thought maybe I could change her mind. And here and there, I found little hints that maybe I had. I found them because I saw what I wanted to see. I felt guilty when I thought about other women, because I knew how it felt to know she had given herself to other men. Those nameless, common douchebags haunted me particularly because she had confided to me about these men, and I knew she didn't love them, not even like them much. And that, 
sickened me. So I felt guilt, but I was human, and humans are famously bad at self-control, aren't they? When I sat in the Aguilar residence and I heard doors open and shut, or soft footsteps down the hall, I imagined Hippolyta's sister, whom I knew only from illusion. I had no idea what she looked like, really. But that perhaps made her more attractive for the way my imagination could make her flawless. All I knew was the bittersweet potpourri-like odor of flowers that hung in the air of Hippolyta's house, which I imagined was the girl's perfume. I had never fantasized without a visual before, but once I did so only to the remembered sounds of doors and bare footsteps. February smelled like spring. Due to a scheduling conflict, I was tutoring Hippolyto on a Saturday morning in the Aguilar's backyard. It was sunny and warm, and I was happy in that moment to be living in L.A. Somewhere on the street, kids could be heard playing. A Herculean car subwoofer thundered by. The air smelled like flowers, automotive exhaust, and just faintly like sewage. Hippolyto stared through the poster board, Zoo, with his forehead in his palm. His leg was bouncing manically under the plastic patio table. In the direct sun, I could see a full eighth of an inch into his skin. All the purple veins just sitting there, and a hint of the milky fats and ruddy muscle tissue below. I still never asked him about it. He was so insecure about everything. And I had believed it was a disease, but now I knew many others in Citro shared his situation, including, by then... A stray dog that had it twice as bad as Hippolyto, which I had glimpsed just as it disappeared into an alley. Amid the quiet of us pretending he was doing his math, I finally asked him, What makes your skin like this? I regretted how blunt it was, so I added, Because I've seen others like this now too, you know? There are others around, right? He stared at me uncomfortably, like I had just asked him to lick knives. I'm jelly, he said, which sounded really funny, and more so for how grave and ashamed he was. I know, but, like, what does that mean? He was looking at me in a way that showed it was awkward for him to tell me the real answer. He shrugged. My sister, half-sister, is full jelly, he said. What is jelly? Then he startled me by looking at me like I was a moron. You don't know? He was incredulous. I'm not from here, man. Help me out. His expression was skeptical. Clearly I was toying with him. He resisted playing the fool by stating a thing that everyone should know, but no one, or no child at least, should openly talk about. His eyes darted back and forth between my face and the glaring poster board. Then he glanced at the house. I followed his eyes and saw no one, until the movement called my eyes to a figure moving away from his sister's bedroom window. The weight of Hippolyto's stare called my attention back. My sister is full of jelly, he said again. She's like what a jelly mama has. My papa is jelly, but my mama is not. You know, right? Jellies are from the ocean? Yeah, like jellyfish, I said, 
Is it because it kind of looks like a jellyfish? What you got? Your skin, I mean? He nodded. They look like jellyfish. That is what I mean, right? You know, right? I shook my head no. From the kitchen where I waited on a hot pocket, I called to Jeff, who was on the couch by the TV. Apparently jelly is a racial slur, I said. He didn't say anything until after the microwave dinged. For what, he said. Like jam people? No, it's like short for jellyfish. For like immigrants that come by sea, I guess. Your mom uh, came by sea he said half-acidly. Rob chimed in from the other room. Your mom came on a donkey. Jeff ate Doritos and replied casually. Your mom came underneath a donkey. It was either the end of February or the first week of March when I met Hippolyto's sister. A few days beforehand, I was tutoring him as usual on a weekday after school, and I needed to send in my timesheet for February. I hadn't caught Rachel Aguilar at home, however, for a few weeks, and I needed an adult's initials to show that I had really done the hours. How old is your sister? I asked him. He shrugged. You don't know, I said. He shrugged again. Is she a grown-up? Yes, he said, as curtly as he had answered most questions. I need an adult's initials on her hours, I told him. Do you think, if she's an adult, do you think your sister could sign off? Is she here? Yes, he said. She's here. The alternative was coming back to Citro on a day when I didn't tutor to get Rachel's initials before the third of the month. And it was a long drive that I couldn't claim as paid time. She's an adult, I asked again. Over 18? He didn't answer. It would save me a trip if she can, I said. I went uncautiously. Can we ask? He nodded. When he didn't get up, I asked, Can you get her? You come with me, he replied. So Hippolyta led me down the hallway. I had never been in the back of the house before, only the living room and the kitchen where we had gone through the door to the backyard. The hallway to the bedrooms was always dark during the day, with no windows and the bedroom doors shut except Hippolyta's, in which dark curtains kept out the light. I glanced in his room as we passed, and I saw his messed up bed and cheap toys and posters on the wall, all of which was very typical for a boy his age. The pungent smell increased deeper into the house. Around a corner were a bathroom and the last bedroom. In the little bathroom, there was a stash of bottled water, and it smelled salty like the ocean. There were no hair clips, no brushes, no shampoos, nothing you'd expect to see in a young woman's bathroom. Only towels, mouthwash, and tampons with all that water. Hippolyto reached for his sister's doorknob. Shouldn't you knock? He shrugged. I don't know. Nobody ever sees my sister. What? 
His hand had fallen back to his side. Is this a good idea? I asked. He shook his head no. I stared at the closed door. While I did so, I noticed the knob was installed backwards. The lock was on the outside. I gave Hippolyto a puzzled look. Never mind, I said. I looked at him to change my decision. He didn't. So later that week, I had to cross the marsh back into Citro to get Rachel's initials. I had tried calling her three times over the past two days and got no response. So I had no option but to go over unannounced and hope to God I could catch her and turn in my hours the next day. Already, I would have to take my timesheets to the Hilton rather than mail them as usual, because I was out of time, and I wasn't looking forward to the errand, which would require me to park in the Hilton's underground garage and validate my parking with the company. It was street cleaning time, according to the parking sign in front of Hippolyto's house, so I had to park two parallel streets behind the Aguilar residence, crammed into a tight spot by a dumpster. I was jogging the distance to Hippolyto's home, crossing a patch of freshly watered grass separating the sidewalk from the street, when I felt my foot slip. The odor found my nose quicker than I could look at the bottom of my shoe and confirm that my foot had found some fresh dog shit. I was by an alleyway and went looking for something to wipe off on. I scraped the brown bulk off with a succession of flat rocks. My stomach wanted to somersault. It was very fresh warm and goopy. I tried to rub the rest of it off in the same damp grass that had brought me the offense, and then continued on around the corner to Hippolyto Street. There was an SUV in the driveway. It was an encouraging sign. I hurried up to the barred door and rang. After a minute, I rang again. Then I wandered off the stoop and loitered in the driveway wondering what to do and still hoping someone was coming to the door. I walked across the yard and gazed absently into the backyard over the steel wire fence. Two orange trees framed my view straight back to the house on the lot behind. I smelled that pungent flower smell that was so attached to the Aguilar home. It called me on like vanilla. I unlatched the gate and went into the backyard. It wasn't like me to just walk into somebody's yard when they weren't home. But I told myself, maybe somebody is back here. There was, after all, that SUV sitting there. Someone was around. Passing between the orange trees, I came up to the corner of the house and could see the whole yard. She caught my eye only after she moved under the shadow of the big coral tree. Hippolyto's sister. She was blue. Translucent blue. Her features were smooth. Simplified. She had big, dark eyes like mirrored sunglasses, and a lipless mouth that was like a sea turtle's, but contoured like a human's. There was no hair on her head. The girl's outline was human, small and soft, but with a mannequin's chest rather than separate breasts. I could see her inside bits, the hint of milky see-through bones and skull. A puffy brain and copper wire nerves floating in turquoise jelly and flashing like a deep sea fish. Purple veins and a violet pumping heart. Some pink entrails and there, nestled inside her flat belly, was a white citrus flower in full bloom. She stood straight and still, 
observing me like a startled animal, half turned over her shoulder. What I said, I said like the reflex when the physician's gavel hits the knee. No fucking way. The feminine figure was somehow comforting, friendly, in spite of her strange features. She turned to face me full on, and it was then that I noticed the white flower in her body. Her face contracted like a cat's when it sniffs the air, though I could see no nose or nostrils. She stepped toward me. I stepped toward her. I was faced with five feet of approximate humanity, a sea creature attempting to be a woman. The barred back door hung open, I barely noticed, but the sister seemed to be alone. Hi, I said. There was a high-pitched noise, only barely audible, and similar to some fast Morse code or a dolphin's speech. Demurely, the monster cocked her head. She went on sniffing and stepping, slow and precise, toward me. She glinted in the sun and then passed into citrus shade. Apollo's sister? I asked stupidly. I think she went on click-toning. I was far too fascinated by all the varying aspects of the woman to notice. I just know she kept smelling the air and stepping closer to me, and I let her come. As she walked, I watched the feminine void between her little thighs and the flower smell, meanwhile, intensified. She came to me, and the faint protuberance that was her only suggestion of a nose just lightly grazed the side of my neck, lighting it up with the sensation of sparks. While she held her face in the crook of my neck, she dawdled her hips against me, and finally, after, I don't know, a minute, thirty seconds, when she pulled back, her tiny hand reached for her genitalia, now grown milky white. Next I knew she was clumsily opening my pants, which then fell to my ankles with the jingle of the belt buckle. She found me half-swollen in my briefs. When she touched it, pulling it out through the leg hole rather than through the fly, it was as hard as I've ever been. Trembling, but forging ahead, because this was some sort of crazy fantasy and there was no way I was going to question it, I led her to the plastic patio table where I had tutored Hippolyto and coaxed her gently to put her palms on it. She felt like a lukewarm gel pack, the kind for applying heat to an injury or like a warm custard pie in a tight sack. I pushed myself into her just twice and couldn't take it anymore. I seeped white paint to meet the broad white orange petals in her womb. At almost the same instant, there was a call from the open door. The grandmother shouted something in Spanish. I stumbled and drew up my jeans, my skin burning and my heart about to explode. I remember glancing at the sister and noticing her lack of alarm, but I, I was not so assured. I was babbling something or other. Excuses, explanations, apologies, I don't know what. But mostly I was stumbling toward the gate, fumbling with my fly and trying to adjust my floppy, retiring and soggy erection so as to passably walk. Through it all, the grandmother yelled and I couldn't understand a word. I expected Rachel Aguilar to be raging angry when she called me, but she wasn't. She insisted more than once, she's not my daughter, and also said, just... That is what she does. 
The girl's father, the inhuman father she shared with Hippolito, had placed her in the Aguilar home. That was how they worked. The full jelly female had been left there with the mixed family to seek human mates. What else Rachel told me clarified something Hippolito had said about being full jelly or half jelly. When jelly males were sufficiently human as to impregnate women, the offspring would be straightforward hybrids, like Hippolyto or the men in the plaza. However, the offspring of jelly females was different. They were more jelly. There was a biological mechanism in these females whereby they could take the male seed of any other species and isolate and integrate only the genes that they wanted. The offspring was fully jelly, but with stolen features. They could adapt to any environment on Earth just by capturing the adaptations other species had already made. They only had to smell out a fit source and then seduce that source with pheromones. Now they had their own little civilization centered around this new key adaptation they had perhaps not long ago acquired. Human intelligence. Yes, I was still going to Citro. I kept tutoring Hippolyto, and as a result, I saw his sister again. Though it became clear right away, the second time I saw her, she no longer had any interest in me. Yes, I was hurt to be nearly invisible to her, but what? Was I going to have a relationship with a thing that was not human and could not even speak? I mean, sure, I fantasized at first about the charms of a magical girl. One who is not just human, but something different. But that was just a fantasy. The reality was something more like a biological machine for which I had once fulfilled a concrete purpose, but no longer. It happened rather quickly. The white flower in her tummy sealed and swelled into an orange fruit. And I knew it was my offspring, but with no pressure to be what society considers a father to it. I just wasn't sure I cared much. It was like I had planted a garden. I felt responsible for the garden, and it was neat to watch it grow, but I was largely detached from it, because to me it was merely some plant that sprouted where I had left a seed. When she bore the orange fruit, which looked a lot like the orange fruit I had seen in the plaza. She planted it in between the succulents out in front of their house, and in March or April it sprouted. But as I watched the little sprout slowly gain height, millimeter by struggling millimeter, each week when I came up to the Aguilar's house, then I began to get a sense of progress and of how frail that progress was as the child developed. By the first week of May, I had purchased a little fencing at Home Depot and put up what my folks would have called a deer fence, just a little cage to protect the young thing. I stood at the door after ringing the bell, and I stared at the plant child with a loose grin until the door popped open. Hippolyto let me in. I knew his sister was there because the smell was strong. 
We sat at the coffee table as usual and I brought out the worksheets from my backpack, arranging them as Hippolyta watched quietly. How was school today? I asked him. He shrugged. I heard a door unlatch and I looked down the hall. Some ten or twenty seconds later, she appeared, a silhouette against the far wall. Then she came to me. When I glanced at Apollito, he seemed uncomfortable. His sister just stood and stared at me, smelling the air occasionally, as was her way. She had done this at least once before, and she appeared listless as she did so, with slack eyes and a deep coolness about her manner. She didn't chirp at me either. I know I couldn't have understood her, but I was a little offended she didn't even want to talk. Only to stare, sadly. I didn't know what she wanted. I felt some sense of duty welling up in me, compelling me to try to please her in some way. But I just didn't know. I couldn't know what troubled her. Was an enduring relationship a part of the jelly mating protocol after all? I didn't think so. Did she want something else from me? Did I have some duty to the child of which I was entirely unaware? I tried to focus on my work with Hippolyto. His sister, meanwhile, passed by and went out the door. The rest of the session passed unremarkably until I went to leave. Whenever I left the house, I found the first thing I did was always to look at the sprout again. Usually I found myself a little let down as much as I was comforted to see the little thing as small and pathetic as always. That evening, I stared at the spot for what felt like half a minute trying to make sense of what was wrong. It was simply gone, dug up. My first impulse, I don't know why, was to run back into the house and tell Hippolyto, who was watching TV on the couch, that it was gone. Oh, he said, not nearly as alarmed as I wished he would have been. All the Carabellos have it. What? Why? He shrugged. That is the way, like... He struggled a little. Again, he seemed annoyed that I didn't know these basic facts already. It is like they decide good blood or bad blood, right? You have the bad blood, don't you? You know, like me. What does that mean? That is why my dad protects me. Why he hides me, you know? They kill the bad ones, the ones they don't want. So some jelly thugs were about to kill my sprout. My veins were on fire. Where are they? What do you mean? Where did they take it? El Rey Medusa. What? I said. El Rey Medusa, he repeated. Like at Old City Hall. That is where El Rey Medusa is. When I ran back out, I noticed the second thing wrong, which was my jeep was sitting funny. The tires were flat. And on closer inspection, as expected, slashed. Having given myself over to about ten seconds of counted-down panic, I pulled my phone and called Jeff. All I told him was that I had a flat, and I asked him to come pick me up in Citro. His hesitation was minimal, but audible. Apparently, and remarkably, considering Rob was afraid to drive to the Walmart on Crenshaw, he wrangled Rob into driving. Meanwhile, I hoofed it on Sneaker for downtown. I passed some jelly kids on the street, and the perplexed skateboard portaging teens watched me go 
as if I had been an outer space alien. Panting and with a splitting side, I approached the plaza and the merman and the mumbling sea. There must have been a show starting at the cineplex, because a line of jellies was slowly feeding into the theater's double bronze door maw below a marquee left blank aside from the spray-painted tag of the Carvelos. The old city hall was right down the street. I could see its gleaming minaret, which reminded me of the dome on the White House. I called Jeff again. They were still 20 or 30 minutes away in traffic. I told them I was at the Cineplex. I heard Jeff telling this to Rob and Rob telling Jeff to dial it into his dash-mounted GPS. I couldn't wait for them. The old city hall was right there, and inside, as far as I knew, a handful of gangbangers were delivering my slow-sprouted citrus mandrake offspring to El Rey Medusa to be judged on genetic merit and probably considering the well-established quality of my asthmatic and underweight genes, euthanized. So I ran, and a man in the movie line turned again to watch me as if I were something strange. The lights were on in City Hall. It was a good sign, or perhaps an ill omen rather, that someone was home. I thought the foyer abandoned until I noticed the two male jellies coming up the staircase. Both wore jeans and wife-beaters over their wildberry jello bodies. The first and bigger man also had a gun in his pants. They saw me immediately. The fuck you doing here, boy? The big jelly roared, rushing at me with the other at his tail. He had, I think, perhaps armadillo scoots on his shoulders and back, but I didn't spend too long analyzing his phenotype because I fixated on the fact his hand was on his pistol. I said, what you doing, boy? Do you know where you are? The second banger had an unpleasant, but not inappropriate, considering his lackey role, mix of features. I detected some rat and some cockroach. He just grinned toothily and made a few bursts of that high-pitched communication I had heard from Hippolyta's sister. El Rey Medusa has my... my what, I wondered. My child, my baby. The word baby sounded so silly. You best believe in... Take me to El Rey Medusa, I demanded. They brought my offspring here, and it's mine. Show me, where, show me who took my... Again, a word failed me. I demand to see who took it. They looked at each other and laughed at the pitiful white boy. While I was in City Hall, Jeff and Rob got to Citro and found the Cineplex. I have to rely on what they told me after the fact, but they say they waited outside for a few minutes and tried to call me before deciding to see if I was waiting inside. In the lobby, they found it all lit up and the concessions bar fully prepared, but not a soul in sight. They thought this odd, of course, and they could hear the movie playing in one of the theaters. Purely out of curiosity, Jeff's curiosity, Rob was terrified and fought him the whole way. They wandered back toward the main theater with no ticket taker to stop them. It was dark in there, but they could see the heads, and the first realization, of course, was what was playing, a recent Hollywood film. They stood in the doorway and let their eyes adjust. Suddenly they were assured by the normalcy of everything and perhaps whispered about going out before they were kicked out for not buying a ticket. But then their eyes began to adjust, and they became more curious due to what they heard. 
There was a lot of shifting and a lot of troubled breathing, and when, from somewhere, there came a loud male groan, Rob said. I can just hear Rob say it in that alarmed way he says things when he feels threatened. What the fuck was that? Silhouetted heads bobbed and lolled against the seatbacks. Jeff and Rob froze as their eyes adapted, revealing a sold-out theater full of jelly men, masturbating agitatedly to whatever presented itself on the widescreen. I don't know what. It didn't have to be women, or even female. Cats, horses, dogs, fucking trees for all I know about jelly's sexual attraction. The jelly men stroked it to all and everything, and Rob swears that following a Tarzanian scream, one jelly shot an arc clear over the head of the unpleased gentleman in the row in front of him. Meanwhile, I was shoved into what once was a typical courtroom of wood panels and brass eagles, but had long since evolved into something else. There was a recliner like a puffy throne in place of the judge's lectern on the dais. Semi-translucent thugs with guns and bling hung out at his flanks while jelly birds perched on the handrails and jelly beasts slept in the corners amidst the overbearing musk. El Rey Medusa sat enormous and blue and muscular, crowned with a mule deer rack and red do-rag. In his huge hands idled big black gats, and his eyes were big and terrible yellow. Then, nearby him, I saw the judge, who had concluded my mating a mistake and who had deemed my genome unacceptable. She who had, I would later speculate, smelled dog pheromones and the shit smeared on my shoe rather than my own that day. Apollo's sister. The blue, naked little girl who smelled of flowers carried the frail orange sprout to El Rey Medusa, who, setting down his pieces, sniffed it once and tore it with his big hands. Thunder Mountain certainly brings enjoyment to the soul, don't you think, Matt? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, if we were uh, gonna hunt, fish, or maybe even camp. But I'm fucking bleeding, Brett! Ah, yes, the indulgence of the base needs for food and shelter. I remember caring for such things. I thought you would enjoy bonding over the offering of your fingers to the fingerless one. I'll give you a finger. I only needed the tip. Dude, I'm not... <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, wanted, you wanted me to just give you the, uh, the tip? Just up to the knuckle, Matt. <laughs> oh, oh, dude, wait. Uh, what's with the pig? He's under some strange spell, it appears. Watching the, the Justinator, or whatever you call it. Uh, the Penalizer? Is that it? Oh, my God. Puggles? Uh, 
Desolator? Brett, he's gone catatonic. And erect. Monster Born Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was The Bridge to Citrus Empire by Butt Norwood. <laughs> Music by him as well. A special mention goes out to artist Dustin S., creator of the awesome Mad Becky webcomic, which I highly recommend, for working with us to create some awesome demented art depicting the sea creature from the Bridge to Citrus Empire. Check it out on our social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And also follow Dustin S. at ThySmoker9 on Twitter. That's Thy, T-H-Y, Smoker9. Also, thank you to Nick Calavera for the special introduction today. Find him on Twitter at Nick underscore Calavera. And check out the t-shirt design he did for us in our store, teespring.com slash stores slash monster porn. This is Matt, and I just wanted to thank you for the continued listens and support. The best way to support us right now is by leaving ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Apple user Kanek Shaw, I think I'm saying that right, says... Such a good podcast. Funny, smart, and outright twisted. Great audio and narration makes this one of my favorites. Thank you, Kanekshaw from Great Britain. Flizote says, This is what all other horror story podcasts used to be. Self-aware, sincere, and original, and all-around good. Thank you for the awesome words, Flizote. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, folks, that's all for now. Until next time, stay weird. And until the shark angels come, Godspeed, strange cowboy. Remember, if you like monster porn, then monster porn likes you. Okay, I I think we can do better. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Hi, folks. This is... uh, No. (coughs) That's not right. Damn it, I'm not sexy. (laughs) And nothing says big dick energy like opening up iTunes and leaving a five-star review and rating. Remember, if you like monster porn, then monster porn likes you. I think that was pretty close. (laughs) I guess, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what we're really going for with this, but hey, good thing I don't use my real name on the internet. Hi folks, this is Nick Calavera, and you're listening to... Wait, I didn't even say my own name right. Calavera. 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 This is Nick Calavera. Calavera. It's Spanish. And you're listening to Monster Porn, the only horror podcast handsome and big-cocked enough to make you swipe right on that app that your girlfriend doesn't know is on your phone. I see the... (laughs) The problem is, I don't know when it goes from being funny to creepy. Maybe we've already crossed that line. I'm, I'm not sure.